That's it. Ready? Ready. Freddy. Sade. Righteous. Journey. Chase. Hunt. Trial. Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. Statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting, your law, and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. Your statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. 140 is a good one for your Sunday there. 140? Your word is very true, very pure. Very pure. It is very pure. Yeah, we're going to have a few, as Burke noted, we're going to have will not be in the Torah for a couple weeks. We're going to, instead of having uh, uh, right out of the Bible, we'll have about 10 doctrine sermons. So on Sunday, it'll be the word of God, the basis of our faith. And then from there, we'll get into some other doctrine sermons. And let's see here. We have, uh, I don't have any prayer requests. I didn't write any down. I've had a really busy week. Lots of people need prayer. And I walked out. I had a whole thing full of stuff to print off, including the names of the people that we uh, want to, uh, you know, mention for salvation, but I walked out. I did not have time to print anything off this afternoon, so we'll continue to just remember them in our hearts until uh, I print that off, and uh, we'll uh, read that when I uh, do print it off, and let's see here. Well, let's just go ahead and have a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come and meet here today, and we certainly uh, love your word. We look forward to a year ahead of just uh, Bible study and sharing in it. We'll be in 2 Corinthians for a little while and then moving on to Galatians. And we just ask that you continue to bless each study and help us to handle things properly and to uh, uh, just tenderly care for this precious word you've given us. And Lord, we do thank you. We've all come safely into the year 2020. And we just are uh, thankful for that. And we just ask that uh, whatever happens in the year ahead, that uh, you would remind us that you are faithful, even in times of trial or trouble that may come, or if any of us uh, depart this life this year, that uh, we can feel content that uh, they know Jesus, and we would pray that it would be so. And we certainly pray for the people that do not know Jesus, that uh, they will uh, be willing to at least listen, and those that have bad doctrine, that they would be willing at least to uh, consider where they might be wrong and to uh, work towards having proper doctrine and uh, that which is sound and reasonable. So, Lord, we just we pray these things that uh, people will have close and intimate walks with you and not straying from uh, the uh, preciousness of your sacred word. And Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you and we commit this, uh, sir, this uh, Bible class to you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse uh, 17. Second. How y'all doing today? Yeah. When did y'all arrive? Yesterday. Yesterday. Well, it's good to have you here. Is it uh, warmer down here than it is up there? Minnesota, a little bit. Yep, I figured as much. I talked to somebody in Racine yesterday, and she said she had just gotten done, uh, which is Wisconsin. It's not Minnesota, but uh, she had just got done shoveling 10 inches of yep, snow. Got it. And so, yeah, it doesn't sound like fun to me. So, uh, oh, one more thing. Before we get into uh, the thing, um, Chrissy Bellevue, who was here, who talked about um, the Susan B. Anthony and canvassing for uh, uh, anti-abortion and pro-Trump, uh, telling people that 
are anti-abortion that they need to vote for Trump. She is still looking for people that she can hire in Sarasota and Charlotte County. So if anybody wants to do that, it's a paid position. She pays well, and all you have to do is go knock on doors and, and talk to people about something that you should be wanting to talk to them about anyway. So uh, if that's something that interests you, she needs people in Sarasota and Charlotte counties. We've got somebody down in Naples that's been doing this. We've got people uh, uh, over on the East Coast that are doing it. And also throughout Florida, it's just there are other ladies that handle other areas. But uh, if you are looking for something like that, uh, let me know and I'll give you her contact information and we will uh, uh, hook you up with her so that she can um, uh, have people that are supporting something that is worthwhile as far as this coming year's elections. Okay, so here we are. We're in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. Okay, and you got there before I got I you there. So, okay, uh, sent by God. Okay, 1417. Oh, this is the last verse of the chapter two, yes. which is pretty special. Hi, how are you? Good to see you. All right, so here we go. Um, Paul's words in this verse reflect a horrifying truth concerning false teachers. They were present even at this extremely early point in church history. He has to actually contrast himself to them because of their numbers, which are hoi polloi in Greek, the many. In other words, the majority of those proclaiming the word of God were hucksters, even way back at the very beginning of the church. How much worse is it today? It should be noted that this could be anyone proclaiming portions of the Jewish canon because this was the word of God at that time. The New Testament did not yet exist, except in any manuscripts which had been circulated at that time. Some of the Gospels may have. Uh, it's apparent that uh, some of the Gospels had gotten around and people were aware of them, but uh, there wasn't any really set canon of Scripture at the time. So most of what they were doing was they were misusing the Old Testament, the Jewish canon, by uh, misportraying Christ in some way or another, or particularly they were probably inserting the law as people continue to love to do today instead of trusting in Christ's grace. Therefore, they could intentionally be proclaiming Christ incorrectly, proclaiming a false Christ, or they could otherwise be engaged in some misuse of the scriptures which existed. And the reason for this type of misuse of scripture was because there was profit in it. They were peddling the word of God, as he says. The word used here is kapeluo. It is found only here in the New Testament. It means properly to act as an unscrupulous merchant. For example, a huckster who profits by the peddling of the word of God for personal gain. Involvement in religion has always been an easy way to benefit off of others. If someone is an eloquent orator, a smart businessman, or a cunning deceiver, he can make a great deal off of religious presentation. We know this. We see it all the time. This is because a desire to know more about such things is instilled in all of us. If the right buttons are pushed, the cash will generally flow out from the target with ease. However, there is a contrast to this, which is teaching the Word of God out of sincerity. Paul notes that this was the intent of himself and those with him. They determined to teach, as Paul says, as from God. The means of teaching is often far less rewarding from a monetary standpoint because it involves an effort in thinking that most don't want to engage in. Proper theology is actually hard work. It's something I say all the time. 
proper theology is very difficult work. It's something you have to work at, you have to think about, and Sunday sermon, perfect example. You'll actually have to think when we get to Sunday sermon. We're not going to have a lot of Bible in there, but we'll have a lot of what theology is presented from the Bible. And you'll have to say, I need to think about this. And I will say something about that. I have practiced this sermon now, what, six times. I got two more times to do it, okay, before Sunday. Practice it six times, and every single time that I practice it, I've had to add to the sermon, and I've learned more as I've gone along. Just reading the comments that I typed out of my own head, I'm actually learning something. That's how complicated some you're things are, yourself. even as simple as it is. What? Yeah, you're teaching yourself. It's amazing. So there you go. Um, proper theology is actually hard work for an individual to assimilate. Most people would rather be taught what to believe and then follow through with that belief regardless of its truth because it is easier to swallow and often goes down very smoothly. Paul wanted nothing of this. Instead, he said that we, this is his words, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. He knew to whom he was accountable, and he feared what not speaking the truth meant. Others, lacking a fear in the true God, said what tickles the ear because it was easy, profitable, and bore the ability to wield control over others. Paul, being in Christ, rather determined to preach the truth of God in a sincere fashion, knowing that there was a greater reward ahead for both himself and for those whom he instructed. Okay? And that's just the way that it should be. You want to handle the word carefully. You want to be, uh, you know, uh, conservative in your theology. I, Sergio and I are always going back and forth making fun things up. As You know, he's doing a video, and I say, you should title it this, and you'll get four million views. And then I'll do a sermon and he'll say, well, you should title it this and you'll get 5 million views. And he says, and if you add in a little bit of this, and we're just kidding, of course, we wouldn't do that. But it's something that when you have a sensational title on a video, people will click on it. It doesn't matter if it's reality or not. And if people want to get 10 million views on a prophecy update, they'll make stuff up out of their head. They'll go to conspiracy theories and they'll put them into their prophecy updates and people listen to it. They're not edified at all. They're getting bad information and yet they sit there and they absorb it because it's so much easier to not think and to just be told sensational stuff. So um, that's just the way it is. Life application. Unfortunately, great orators often gain large audiences regardless whether they actually teach the word of God in truth or not. I'll give an example. I bring him up from time to time out in Texas. One of the best orators I've ever heard in my life. And yet his theology is lacking in the extreme. One time he wrote a book, and to promote his book, he came out with a... Uh, 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 commercial on TBN back when I used to have TV and he said do you know that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah right and so this one person on Facebook that I had uh, was having a conversation with she was talking all about this great preacher out in Texas John Hagee and I said do you know he tells people that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah and she says I don't believe that so I posted the, the uh, advertisement from him right on her wall and she wouldn't believe it it's like, I'm not going to listen. I, I'm not even going to hear that this has happened. And then you go through what his theology says. I'll bring it up in one of our sermons. I think it's this week's sermon. What his theology actually teaches. And you think, how could anybody listen to that? But it's, it's lost when somebody is a great orator. When they speak well, when they have a great presentation, when they don't stutter their words, people listen and they assimilate it. 
if they don't use notes, if they just walk around and talk, you think this guy really knows what he's talking about when the fact is they probably have no idea what they're talking about. They're just making stuff up as they go because you can't do proper theology out of your head in a 50 or 60 minute sermon. It is not possible. If you want to be proper in your theology, you will have it laid out well in advance and you will stick to your notes in that. That's just the way it is. And I'm sorry if people disagree with that. It is complicated and it is very difficult and it is the word of God. It is to be handled properly. And that's what Paul is telling us right here. Um, my mother just walked in. If they are, uh, if they sound authoritative, okay, and not everybody that sounds authoritative is a bad preacher, okay? I can tell you that there are great preachers that I listen to. I'll turn on, you know, Moody Radio and somebody will come on and I'll say, I just love to listen to this guy. He's spot on with his theology. He's doing a great job with his presentation. He's a great orator. It's wonderful. Now, one of my favorite preachers of all time, he's dead now, but I loved Adrian Rogers. He was so exciting. He was always theologically sound. There was one sermon where he was wrong. He was way wrong on it. That's okay. I gave him a break because it was not a salvific issue. It was just one of his pet peeves that he introduced into a sermon. Other than that, he was always very good. He had good jokes that went along with it. I'm not a joker. You'll very rarely hear me add in a joke, but uh, uh, he, he was a great orator, and he was a wonderful man of God. He's gone now, but you hear these people on uh, Moody, they can be very good orators and good theologians, which is a wonderful blessing. It really is. Anyway, um, uh, if they sound authoritative, they can pretty much say anything and reap a great harvest of very poor grain. And that's a lot of preachers out there. Okay. It is up to each person to be discerning and to study and show himself approved concerning what is assimilated into his repository of accumulated knowledge. That's important. And it's all of our responsibility. Ma, would you come up here? I have to ask you to do something for me. Um, I'm not going to embarrass you. I just need you to come up. Uh, uh, I think we're on break. We're on break? Oh, I got to put it on Bible study. Why didn't I do that? I don't know. Thank you for telling. Why didn't you tell me that 20 minutes ago? Poor people online. You were talking. Oh, that's all right. Just interrupt. I had no idea. So sorry about that, folks. So sorry. Mom, I need you to come here. Um, okay, 3-1, please. Before you go there. Yes. Adrian Rogers. Being dead still speaks. Yes, he does. Yeah. It's like the word. The word is it's alive, it's active, and it still speaks. And the people that wrote it may have been dead for 2,000 years. Come here. I'm not going to embarrass you or anything. I just need you to do something. Oh, that's the Come here. Oops. It's 6.05. Yes, thank you. Right. You just ruined my iPad, too. Okay. There you go. That's all right. Okay, thank you for that. All right, here we go. Let me put this back together, and uh, we'll... All right, so here we go. Uh, three, one. one. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Okay, well, that's close enough. We'll just go with it. All right, understanding this verse requires understanding the context. Paul is rhetorically responding to an objection that may be laid against him. Okay. On the surface, the preceding verses might seem to show that he was almost bragging about his efforts and the efforts of those who were with him. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? 
For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity. But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. You might think he's bragging. He's not. To quell the notion that these statements were somehow boasting, he re redirects their thoughts with these questions. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? In essence, is what I have just said an attempt to exalt us and to show our superior ministry? Have I written this to obtain your approval? Based on the rhetorical nature of the question, the answer must be no. And he continues, Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Again, it is a rhetorical question. Epistles of commendation were used to establish authority for someone who was visiting another location. If someone showed up at a synagogue or a church representing someone else, they would carry a letter to prove that they had the authority or respect of the person they were representing. This is found in Acts 9, when Paul was sent to harass the Christians in Damascus. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says there, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked, letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them to, bound to Jerusalem. So people would have a note of authority or a note of authenticity that they would carry with them to show that they were approved. This happened with in Acts chapter 15, after the Council of Jerusalem. They sent a letter to the churches, and they said, these people are coming, and they are approved, and this is approved by us. And that's what they do, okay? Oh, here it is. Likewise, in Acts 15, 20 through 29, a letter of doctrine was issued by the ruling council in Jerusalem, which specifically mentioned Paul and Barnabas as chosen men. Such a letter then granted them the authority to speak for the ones who sent them. They were letters of validation. Paul wanted to know if such a letter was needed either from others to establish his authority in Corinth or from the Corinthians in order to acknowledge his deeds and authority based on his ministry at Corinth. Again, the obvious answer to this is no. He will give an explanation of why in the verses to come. Life application. Sometimes it is necessary to obtain solid evidence that someone has the right and authority to minister in spiritual matters. We wouldn't want to trust someone who just walked into a church with a youth ministry without knowing his background. However, there are times when actions are sufficient to establish authority. This may take a long time, but eventually a person might be known by the conduct of his life. If so, then no such external evidence would be needed. But you have to see somebody, you know, when I went to be ordained, I was at a Korean church and I told the pastor I want to get ordained. I want to be a, a, a minister. And he said, well, here's what you need to do. Okay. And I went through the steps and uh, uh, have I ever told this story? Okay, I'll tell you then. I, I uh, was at the Korean church, and the pastor said, okay, I want you to go to college and uh, get your degree, and then afterward, we'll ordain you. And so I did, and the day that I got my uh, certificate from Southern Evangelical Seminary, I took it in. I said, Pastor, I, I'm ready if you are. And he says, the deacons will be visiting this month from Tampa, and when they come down, we'll talk to them about it, and then we'll get you set up for ordination. It was a Korean church, and uh, they, everything was done in Korean, and that's fine. Um, but uh, they came in, the deacons who had never met me, didn't know anything about me. The pastor recommended me, and they said, we don't want to ordain him. And he said, he has a beard, and we're not going to do that. And so he needs to shave. 
And so uh, the pastor called me to his house and he says, well, you need to shave. And I said, there's nothing in this word that says that I need to shave. He says, well, do you want to please God or men? I said, well, I want to please God and that's why I'm not going to shave. It's because if I wanted to please men, then I would do it for them, but I'm not going to do it. They never spoke to me. They never asked a word. And so I said, pastor, I I'm not going to put you in this uncomfortable position. I went to my brother and I said, is the pastor at your church available so I can talk to him? And he said, yeah, he's a great guy. So I went out and I talked to him and he says, that's nonsense. I said, I know it is. He said, okay, uh, spend a year here. Let the congregation get to know you exactly as I just said right there. And then he says, if they agree, it's a congregational church at the time. He says, then we will have the uh, deacons to get together. They'll do an interview and they'll recommend or not recommend you for ordination. ordination. And so that's what happened. And so it was an extra year on my life because I was not going to put that pastor, who's a very decent gentleman, into any further difficult position over a bunch of legalists. What's that? I'd like the name of those deacons so I can thank them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. Because I'd still be teaching at a Korean church in Korean for the rest of my life. But anyway, um, yeah, that was that was what happened. And uh, when he said that, I was kind of dumbfounded. Do you want to please God or men? I says, I want to please the Lord. I said, I'm not going to do that. Anyway, so there you go. So um, that was one of the very few jokes I ever made at uh, Grace Baptist Church was uh, at the very beginning of the sermon, Seth couldn't be there or somebody couldn't be there. Oh, Pastor Dave couldn't be there. That's who it was. And then Seth had me come in and he says, we need somebody to fill in on Sunday. I said, yes, I will. And uh, he, I said, what do you want me to speak on? He says, I don't care. Speak on anything. We need somebody on Sunday. And so I came and I told the congregation who were there, I said, uh, uh, Seth called me in. He wants me to preach this Sunday. And he said, I can speak on anything. And so I want to speak on why Christian men should wear beards. And everybody blew up. That was a good one. It's the only joke I think I've ever given during a sermon, but it worked. So, okay, let's go on. Um, where was I now? Uh, Acts 9, Acts 15. Okay. Uh, oh, we're in 3-2. There we go. You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts Known and read by everybody. Known and read by everybody. Okay, 3-2. In response to the rhetorical questions of the previous verse, Paul now gives a very heartwarming description of the true state of things. Instead of a written letter of commendation, which is carried in the hand, he tells them that their church is our epistle written on our hearts. Whereas a written letter can be forged or lost or simply discarded, the writing upon the heart is true, it is permanent, and it is always present for all to see. Paul uses the same terminology in the book of Romans concerning the law of Moses and the inner law. One was recorded and record one was written and recorded by Moses on tablets of stone, the other on the heart. The one on the heart is actually more permanent and more effectual than the other. We'll go there really quickly to Romans chapter 2, and we'll see what Paul has to say about that. Romans chapter 2, and then in verse 14, he says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Verse 16, and the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Okay, so um, Paul uh, indicates there that 
what is written on the heart is something that is permanent, okay? And tablets of stone, just because it's written on tablets of stone doesn't mean that it's permanent in the hearts of the people. It may be permanent on the stone, but the people have not assimilated it. It doesn't do any good at all, okay? So there you go with that. Likewise, the testimony of the founding of the church, the caring for the brethren, the love shared between the believers, and so on, all are an epistle which is written on the heart, known and read by all men, Paul says. It is a permanent epistle in the heart of all who see it. The fact that a church exits, exists demonstrates that, there, that it is there because of a definite purpose. Sometimes it's a definite purpose, which isn't so good, but the fact that it is there, it has a purpose for being there. A written letter could never provide such sure evidence. The terms known, to, known and read, the terms known and read are a play on words from the Greek words ginoskomeni and anaginoskomeni. A similar word play is found in 2 Corinthians 1.13, where it says this, 2 Corinthians 1.13, it says there, for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end. With the church standing as a unit and growing in Christ, any can read and understand its status more surely than if it were an epistle written on paper. Life application. When others look at the church you attend, how will they perceive it? Is it one which stands on the word of God? Are the principles of the faith firmly fixed in the minds and hearts of the people? Do the congregants show love one to another? It matters far less what the church website or brochure says than what the personal human perceptions of the church actually read. Be sure that when others see your church, they see a true and godly epistle written on the hearts of all. And as I say to people, if you are searching out a new church, the best thing to do is not to go to the church website and read the statement of faith. Okay, why? Because when you go to a statement of faith on a church website, it is probably 99.732% probable that they have cut and pasted it from somebody else. They have no idea what it says. I went through that when I went to uh, Grace and we were teaching out there one time. I thought we're going to teach on what the um, uh, statement of faith that this church says, and not one person there knew what it said. They didn't know what the doctrine was. They didn't know if it was eternal salvation or anything. It's just cut and paste, and people do that because they have to say something. Oh, that sounds good. Jesus is God. We believe that. The Word of God is infallible. We believe that. And they just cut. But then the people in the church may or may not even teach that. Okay? Um, church of God out on uh, Fruitville Road. They uh, took a dive, and it was big congregation, and they took a dive, and almost everybody ended up at Grace Baptist the next Sunday. The church grew double almost in a single week. What's that? St. John's also, that was a different one, but that, but that wasn't, the church didn't take a dive, that was over abortion, he knows that. Anyway, this was a church of God over on Fruitville, and they came over there, but before they did, they had called me, and they said, um, uh, Charlie, would you come and apply to preach at our church? And I said, well, what church are you talking about? And because these are all friends on Facebook. And they said, uh, well, it's the Church of uh, Assemblies of God or Church of God over there. And I said, I can't preach there. I said, their doctrine is completely different than what I agree with in any way, shape, or form. And they said, what do you mean? And I went back and I gave them a whole list of the things I believed. I believe in eternal salvation. They believe you can lose your salvation. I believe in this. They believe that. And when I got done, every one of them said the same thing to me. 
Well, we believe what you believe. I said, well, then what are you doing at that church? Amen. Right? Amen. So, I don't know. I just don't understand. But there, you got to know what the church teaches, not what, not what somebody says on a piece of paper or on a, a website. Okay? But that's what they had said, and there you go. Um, so uh, with the church standing at, oh, I've already said that. So go ahead, 3-3. Three, three. Three. Okay. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Wow. See, there you go. And it's close enough. We'll leave that one too. Paul continues with his thought of the church at Corinth as being an actual epistle of Christ, the church itself. Instead of needing letters of commendation to or from the Corinthians, they themselves are such a letter, evident to all. The word clearly gives the sense of this being an obvious truth. And so the epistle is a stamp of the authenticity of the apostleship of those who worked with and for them, as he says, ministered by us. His words here could be likened to a carpenter who makes fine furniture. Such a carpenter doesn't need a letter telling anyone how good his work is because the finished product speaks for itself. Each chair or table is a letter of commendation. If you make something that is junk, that's your letter of commendation. If it falls apart, what did they used to say about Japanese things years ago when I was young? Uh -huh. Oh, you know, it's a junk. And then all of a sudden they started putting out these cars that never broke. <laughs> the American cars were falling apart. My friend, I was at CSDQ Utilities, which is the wastewater plant in high school. I was working there. Tom Keyes was an operator there. And he bought American cars. He bought a brand new American car. And when he did, he got to the uh, wastewater plant that afternoon and he rolled up his window and the handle came off in his hand, right? And then he went out that evening to get in it and to go home, brand new car that day. He got it and it wouldn't start. And there was all kinds of electrical problems with it because Americans had stopped making quality. And people started to realize these Japanese cars are really good. That became their stamp, all right? This is the way we view things is a church is the same thing. What is the stamp of your church? What is the stamp of your quality of uh, theology? What is the stamp of whatever? Okay, how do you present yourself? Likewise, Stradivarius violins are a testimony to the work of the master himself. Such exa examples help us to see what Paul is referring to. And this special epistle, excuse me, epistle, which is the church at Corinth, doesn't need the usual implements of a letter. It is, as Paul says, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Here Paul goes to concepts found in Scripture itself to demonstrate his point. The Spirit of the living God is found to replace the finger of God, which wrote out the Ten Commandments in Exodus 31.18. This same concept was used by Jesus in Luke 11 and elsewhere. Let me take you to Luke 11 for a second, and we'll just look at what he said. Luke 11, and it says there in verse 19, on, one more page, 19, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is explained further by Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. Let me take you there, Matthew chapter 12. And he says in verse 28, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God 
has come upon you once again. All right, so he's explaining what's going on. The tangible concept of God's finger represents the force behind it, the spirit of God. Continuing on with this, he notes that the writing is not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Again, this is recalling the physical tablets of the Ten Commandments and is then being contrasted to the tablets of flesh. This is something that was promised in the book of Ezekiel to the Jewish people. Way, way back in Ezekiel chapter 11, it says, all right, hang on a second, Ezekiel 11, and then he says in verse 19, then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. This promise is further spoken of in the book of Jeremiah when the Lord promised a new covenant to the people in Jeremiah chapter 31. I was listening to the book of Hebrews on the way over here today, and this quotation from Jeremiah is repeated in the book of Hebrews. So if you listen to your Bible, you'll begin to figure that out, that everything in the Bible is connected in some way or another. So please get an audio Bible and listen to it 24 hours a day, 365 days this year, okay? Jeremiah 31 verses 31 and 32, okay? It says there, uh, I'm in 32, you've got to be in 31. There it is. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. I'll go on. Verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Okay. And like I said, Hebrews cites that right there in the book of Hebrews, showing that it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, okay? And it also shows that the when there is a, a covenant, when there's a new covenant, you have a change of the priesthood, and when you have a change of the priesthood, by necessity, there is a change of law, okay? In other words, the law of Moses is annulled. And then he says it again in 7... 13 and the, uh, 7 18 and then again in 8 13 and then he says it again in 10 9 he says it explicitly at least three or four or five times in the book of hebrews the law is annulled it is obsolete it is set aside in christ we do not reinsert the law in any way shape or form because if we do christ profits us nothing paul says in the book of galatians okay we'll be in galatians soon enough so we'll just wait all right Paul is showing that these promises to Israel, such as what, what I just read you from Ezekiel and Jeremiah, these promises to Israel are realized in the church. That does not mean that the church replaced Israel. It means that the church is a body of Jew and Gentile. The covenant was made with Israel, the house of Judah and the house of Israel, right? Everybody remember that? I read it a second ago. However, Gentiles are grafted into the Begins with the sea and ends with Commonwealth. Anybody? The Commonwealth of Israel. It is the church. There is one gospel for Jew and for Gentile. One gospel. Okay? And we are grafted into that. When Paul said a minute ago, I read you that, where Paul says, my gospel, guess what? He says elsewhere, our gospel. He says, the gospel. 
each time he says something. It doesn't mean that you take a doctrine and run with it because, oh, that's Paul's gospel and therefore it's not for the Jews. That's incorrect. He's making a point about using my or we or our, etc. There is one gospel for the Jew and the Gentile. Okay? So, it is the church which has been granted these things. All right? In every way, let me read that again. Until the time when the message is accepted by the Jewish people, it has been granted to the Gentiles through the work of Paul. Okay, everybody got that? Right now we are in the dispensation of grace, but we are also in the Gentile-led church age. Romans 9 uh, through 11 will show us that this is the case, but that someday Israel will understand and they will come to a saving knowledge of Christ as a nation. Right now, individual Jews come to Christ just like individual Gentiles, but someday Israel will receive the covenant as a nation. Jesus says as much in uh, the book of Matthew. He says, oh, uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers its chicks under its wings, but you are not willing. Behold, I tell you, you will not see me until you, speaking to Jerusalem, the seat of government, meaning the, the representatives of the people of Israel, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until the government of Israel recognizes Christ and says, we submit to you, he ain't coming back. Okay, that is theology 101 right there. Christ will not return to this earth until Israel calls on him, and it will happen. He is coming for us, but he's not coming to this earth. Everybody got that? We're going to meet him where? In the clouds. That's right, in the air, okay? So, uh, it's so funny. I got to tell you this. My friend, she said that uh, she's talking, it's the first of the year. Okay, this is yesterday I got this email. It's, it's worth telling you this. She emailed, and she said, there's a guy that loves Jesus, but he's not the brightest bulb in town. And she and her friend were jumping up and down, and he comes up, what's up? And he says, the rapture's happening. It's happening by time zones. <laughs> and this guy was like, what? Yeah, people are disappearing by time zone. Anyway, that was very cute, but it's not very good theology, but it was cute. And they got him with it. He was all excited. So anyway, it's going to happen for the whole world all at once. Okay, Christ is not coming back to this earth until Israel calls on Christ. Until that happens, it ain't going to, he's just not going to come. Okay, so there you go with that. And um, let's see here, um, Jeremiah. Oh, yeah. Okay, in every way, Paul is hinting at the superiority of the new covenant over that of the old covenant. Further, he is showing that these promises apply not to Israel, but to the nations of the world. It is a marvelous thing which God has done. All right, the superiority of the new covenant over the old. If you ever read a commentary by somebody that says that Jeremiah, when he says, behold, I get, will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and they say the word renewed, because this is what people, they don't want to admit that the old covenant is obsolete by the new covenant. So they say the word actually means renewed covenant. That is untrue. The word cannot be interpreted that way. That is somebody that is clinging to the law of Moses and wants all of his adherents to fall into that same bondage. If you read that in a commentary, dismiss that commentary immediately. That yeah, is the, untrue. The thing that, that drives me nuts is there are no covenants in the New Testament. Oh, yeah, except the one where Christ died yeah, for yeah. us, right? Okay, yeah, so, you, yeah, yeah. People, people will do anything to cling to the bondage of the law. They will do anything to do that. 
because it is so much easier. I got to tell you what, it is so much easier to work your way to heaven instead of trusting in the grace of Christ, right? That's what people think. They're just going to work their way to heaven. It's about me. It's about me. It's about me. That is exactly what that is. It has nothing to do with God's grace or his gift of Jesus. It is all about me. Stay away from that type of theology. Okay. Uh, life application. Oh, one more sentence. I just said the new covenant over the old. Further, he is showing that these promises apply not just to Israel. I did say that, but to the nations of the world. A true church life application is actually an epistle to those who see it. It therefore has the power to change lives as people read the actions of the congregants and then decide if what they are inspecting is worth joining. May our actions in our respective churches be such that those who read our epistle <coughs> want to be a part of it as well. All right, whatever church you attend, and we got people from all kinds of churches here, make sure that you and the people that you worship with do so so that people walk in and they say, this is a church I want to be a part of. This is a church that honors God and it is faithful to his word. All right, three, four. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Okay, here we go. Paul and those with him relied on the epistle, which is the church itself, to be the sure proof of their ministry. To him, it was enough to know that their ministry was, in fact, appointed by God and accepted by God. And this was despite their many failings and points of error in doctrine. Remember that from 1 Corinthians? All the way through the thing. They're just a terrible, uh, convoluted church filled with doctrine, which is all over the place. And yet he says that this, you are our epistle, okay? Despite their many failings, their points of error in doctrine, which he had addressed. And guess what? He is going to continue to address in this epistle. Because of this trust, there was no need for any other external proofs such as letters of commendation. They alone, as a body of believers, were sufficient for the sure testimony of their hard work. And the sure trust is, as he says, through Christ. In reading Paul's many letters, it is apparent through and through that he never considered his own efforts to be what made the difference in the result of his labors. He never took the credit for it. Instead, it was Christ working through him, directing him, and guiding him to obtain the much-needed results of an effective living epistle, which were the churches established and built up by his ministry. One example of many which Paul writes is found in the book of Ephesians. Let me take you there. Ephesians chapter 4, and he says there in verses 11 and 12, uh, let's see. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ. Verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. All right, now go on. 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. All right, you get the point there. He's making a point. It is Christ who gives for the equipping of, as he says, the many various tasks of which the church is engaged. And finally, it is through Christ toward God that this occurs. The idea of toward God is that the surety that was felt was related to God. It was a confidence that their works were appointed by him, established by him, and conducted in them 
by him. Further, it is implied that any continuance of their works in Christ would be toward God. Paul's words are a marvelous reflection of his confidence that everything was of him, by him, and for him. Life application. Either a church is built on Christ, meaning the Christ of the Bible, and whose confidence is in God's efforts in the conduct of the church, or it is not really a church at all. Far too many churches today bear the name of Christ, but they have no true trust in Christ toward God. In essence, they meet to play church, but there is no ultimate uniting with God in their meeting. 3.5. Not that we are confident in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our confidence comes from God. Okay, this one says our sufficiency is from God. Paul noted in the previous verse that we have such trust through Christ toward God. He admitted that the trust was through Christ, but possibly fearing that this expression wasn't to be fully understood, he expands on it now. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves is stating that even the trust they have ultimately comes from God. If we have trust in the things of God, then they must be from God. One cannot trust in what one does not believe in. This sufficiency from God excludes thinking, as he says, of anything as being from ourselves. He's saying it's from God. Okay? In all things related to faith, God must be the source. Our faith, our hope, our trust, our reason for working, and so on, all stem from God. Nothing that we possess in our faith can logically stem from ourselves. This does not mean that we do not have free will, but that the free will we exercise stems from God as well. He is the source of all things. One difference between a mature believer and those who are either weak in the faith or who have no faith is that they have come to the understanding that all things are from God, for God, and to God. He is absolutely sovereign, and we are living within the confines of his sovereign works over and through creation. That'll be our second doctrine sermon. The first one is the word of God, the basis of our faith. Our second one in another week will be the sovereignty of God. All right, God is sovereign. Therefore, with this understanding, Paul completes the thought by acknowledging just that. He says, but our sufficiency is from God. His conversion was from God. His growth in Christ was from God. His communicating to others the gospel which is from God, and their reception of it is of God. If we as believers can truly accept this fact, then we stand in a very good spot in relation to him. In the end, there should be no fear of failure, no fear of man, and no worry about the day ahead. God is directing all things according to his wisdom. We are to engage our feet with this thought in mind. Let us head out each day knowing that the Lord is already aware of all that will transpire and he is directing our steps according to that plan. We need to submit to him though. I mean, there are things that happen in life because we did not submit to God. But if we submit to God and we are his, everything that happens is a part of the plan that he has for us in him. Okay? If we're not in him or if we're not submitting to him, then everything that happens is a part of his plan for us despite what's going on. In other words, when, uh, what's his name? Joseph was sold by his brothers, right? What did Joseph say? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, right? 
So just because we are not in the will of the Lord doesn't mean that God is not in control. He is sovereign, and I'll talk about that even this week. We'll talk about that, okay? He is sovereign over all things. Nothing happens apart from him, but where is the direction of that attention going? Is it directly for us because we're submitting to him, or is it maybe in punishment of us, or in a way of uh, showing us that he is just in his judgment of us? Whatever. God is in control of it. Okay, life application. The life you have is a gift from the Lord, and it is to be used for the Lord. Use it to his glory, and do not fret about the path you are on. He is there with you, and he will be there at the end waiting for you. All right? If you're in Christ, this is absolutely certain. Okay? Even if you're not in Christ, he's going to be there at the end waiting for you, but it's going to be a judgment of condemnation, and you're not going to be very happy about that. Right? Okay? So, 3-6. He has made us confident and sufficient as ministers of a new covenant, not to the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, letter kills, kills, but the Spirit, but the spirit gives, gives life. life. Very, it's almost identical here. They plagiarized one or another. Okay, 3.6. Paul shows here that the sufficiency of his ministry came from God, who, as he says, also made us sufficient ministers of the new covenant. From beginning to end, his work was enabled and carried through because of the work of God. And there is an end purpose to it that God works towards. It is in these duties, ministering this new covenant, that they have been so enabled to work. This new covenant is then contrasted to the old covenant through Paul's continued words. He says, not of the letter, but of the spirit. The Mosaic law came in writing by the hand of God and carried with it the full force and effect of the consequences for violating its precepts. Instead, the new covenant in Christ's blood is received by hearing and believing. Upon belief, the person is sealed with the Spirit. It is an accomplished fact at that point. The difference between the two, then, is explicitly stated in Paul's next words, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul explains this in detail in Romans, but a good summary of it is found in Romans 7, 9 through 11. Romans 7, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 9. Okay, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and it killed me. Once again, Leviticus 18.5, uh, the man who does these things will live. live by them. That's right, okay? Is any person from the Old Covenant alive today? Not one of them. Not one of them, except Jesus, because he did the things of the law. None of them could. Every one of them was buried and rotted away. Every single one of them, okay? But the people of the New Covenant have a better hope. There is a time when somebody, it may be our generation, hopefully it is, will be translated to glory and we will never see corruption. But until that happens, God has a plan and people are dying in the process. Eventually they will be raised to incorruptible life. But those of us who are alive when the Lord comes will never see that. Okay, unlike the old covenant where everybody died, all of them. Even Jesus died, he just didn't corrupt. He came back out of the grave to prove that he had done what he was charged to do as an object lesson of the severity of the law. In contrast to the life-giving power of the new covenant, God reveals these two examples from biblical history. The first one is from 
Exodus chapter 32. Let me take you there really quickly. Exodus chapter 32 says 28, 29, 31. There we go. 32 in verse 25. It says there, now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. This is right after the giving of the law. He came down the mountain, and he's first thing he does after coming down the mountain and breaking the Ten Commandments or dashing them to the ground, he tells him to do this. Verse 28, so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Okay, about 3,000 men. And then, whoops, in Acts 2, we read this. It says here, Acts 2, where are we? 10, yeah, that's right, Acts 2. It says there in verse 40. Oh, where are we? Okay, uh, and with many words, this is Peter speaking. Uh, he was speaking, and with many words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation, the same terminology that was used of the wilderness generation, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. You had 3,000 that died, about 3,000 that were saved. The exact same words are used in both accounts. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. At the time of the giving of the law, about 3,000 people perished due to disobedience of the law. At the time of the giving of the Spirit, about 3,000 people were saved due to the reception of the word of life. One is on stone, one is on the tablet of the heart. It is an object lesson in and of itself concerning the superiority of the giving of the Spirit over the giving of the written code of the Mosaic Law. You think God did that intentionally? Of course he did. He did that so that we could see what is happening between the two covenants and not to trust in the law of Moses. The contrast in this verse is between the entire body of law given at Sinai and the giving of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem at Pentecost. We now also have written guidelines with the completion of the New Testament, but its application is based on the work of the Spirit after salvation. It is he who saves us, and then we learn the details of this new life in Christ. Get that right, because I'm going to do a doctrine sermon on that particular issue. I'll read it again. It is he who saves us, and then we learn the details of this new life in Christ. Okay? Remember that precept, because that's coming up in a doctrine sermon within the next nine weeks, because I've already typed it. In contrast, the Old Testament simply brought death through the revival of sin. What is the process? Do we have to do something and then get saved, or do we get saved and then do something? That's, get saved for good works. Okay, we get saved for good works. Okay, that was your test, because I just said it, and I wanted to make sure everybody got it. We get saved, and then we do something. Okay, I'm going to bring up two very prominent preachers that you all know and are aware of, and I'm going to show where they are wrong in their doctrine, because that's important. It's not that there are bad people. It's just that they are teaching the wrong thing. Okay. It's important that we get that right, because when you tell somebody something wrong in your gospel presentation, you are proclaiming a wrong gospel, a false gospel. 
okay? And when you proclaim a false gospel, those people will run. They won't come closer, or if they do come closer, they now have a faulty understanding of what Christ did, and what did they do? They end up in a church bound in legalism. I need to do this, and I need to do that, and I need to do this. What does it say in 2 Corinthians 5.19? Can anybody quote that to me? God is not counting men's sins against them, okay? We're, that's right. That's the word of reconciliation. God is not counting men's sins against them. If you are in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. That will be what I'm typing this coming Monday. Will be a sermon this coming Monday on eternal salvation. Okay, it's I'm going through a logical process. You start with this, and then you get down to the very end of it. But if you are in Christ, one, you're in Christ. Okay, and two, you are not being imputed sin. What does sin do? The wages of sin is, that's right, the wages of sin is death. We have been brought to life in Christ. We are not being imputed sin. Is walking away from Christ a sin? Yes, but you're not being imputed sin, okay? I don't care what people's arguments are about losing your salvation. They have not thought the issue through. You are in Christ. He has made a promise to you. God's decrees are not conditional. You're going to hear that about 10 times during a sermon coming up. God's decrees are not conditional. When he makes a decree, it is eternal. Okay? Everybody got that? Yes. He never said, he never made a decree in the old covenant. He said, this is what I'm going to do. The old covenant is revelation of God, but it is not complete revelation of God. God is progressively revealing himself to us. But when he makes a decree, that decree is forever. When he's when it says in Genesis 15 verse 6 that Abraham believed God and God credited to him for righteousness, that was an eternal decree. He will never take that away and it is recorded in his eternal word. Okay? People need to think through the doctrine of eternal salvation because people that don't believe that are stuck in bondage and it's a terrible place to be. All right? I know I talked about it the very last thing we talked about last week in in uh, Exodus 36. That was there for a reason. It was to show us that God has done something that is forever, and there's no way to get out of it, even if we want to, because God has made a decree. He is not going to change his mind, okay? And who, what kind of a person would want to get out of being saved and go to hell? Somebody that's insane. So God isn't going to count that against him anyway, right? Think it through. Okay, um, let's see here. Acts 2, the New Testament. Um, yeah, given it. Okay, Life application, we are saved by grace through faith. That is a very simple concept, which is often turned into a convoluted system of working towards salvation by uninformed or outright false teachers. To say that works are required to save us or to keep us saved is to say that what Christ did was insufficient for our salvation. May we never be so presumptuous. He's done every single thing to procure our salvation. There's nothing we can add to it at any time along the continuum of our life. The moment we are saved, he did all of the work to get us to that point. And then from that point, if we have to do something to keep what he did, then it wasn't of grace by faith. It was not because we had to work to keep being saved. It was never by grace and through faith. If at any point along the time, you have to do something to keep being saved. And grace is what? Un, that's right. Unmerited favor. That's the short term right there. Unmerited favor. 
you have been give, giving something that you did not merit. If you have to do something afterward, then it's not unmerited favor. Okay? 3-7. Oh, yes. Burke's going to throw in a monkey wrench. Yes. Enoch was before the law, correct? Who? Enoch, Enoch. yeah. Enoch. Okay. Elijah was after the law. Was yes. Okay. Neither one of those died. That's right. Okay. But they will. Yep. They will. They are the two lampstands and the two uh, witnesses. Of, oh, okay. Yeah, so, no doubt about it. They will. They have to come back and do that. They have to fulfill their calling. How do you know it's them? I typed something uh, to somebody about that exact thing today. He sent a guy from Australia, sent me an email. And he said, well, in the Bible class, somebody said that the two witnesses in Revelation 11 are the Old and New Testaments. So I said, well, that doesn't make sense because these two die and then they come back to life and those aren't going to die. The two testaments aren't living beings. Okay. And they says, or, um, uh, they say that it's, um, John and Moses or yeah, I, 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 I may have gotten that wrong, but John and Moses, Moses has died. And it says in the book of Hebrews, it is appointed for men to die once and then the judgment. So it can't be Moses. And then it can't be John Okay, because a lot of people want to say that it's John the Revelator because Jesus said that uh, he would never die, even though it doesn't say that, but they inferred that and then they say it was John. Why isn't it John? It's because the two lampstands and the two olive branches are mentioned where? In Zechariah chapter 4. That's right. It says these are them before John was born. So it isn't John. Okay, it leaves only two possibilities in scripture that make any sense at all, Enoch and Elijah. Okay, so there they are in John, uh, Zechariah 4. And yes, they're going to come back in Zechariah chapter, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 11. They're going to witness and then they're going to die. That is their calling. And that's why they were raptured in the first place is because God has a plan for them to stand before him and serve him for thousands of years and to fulfill the plan in Jerusalem after having witnessed all of human history, all of the Gentile history of the world and all of the Jewish history of the world. They will have seen it all. They've gone through it all. They can stand there and they can say, you guys are wrong. Because we have seen history unfold before our eyes. Whether you can believe it or not, we are those two people. We know. Go back and read the book of Zechariah and check out your writings. You don't need to go to the New Testament. But when you do, you'll see that we are the same people. Okay? That, I'm, I'm certain of that. Thank you very much. Okay. What, you know, one, oh, thank you. And one other place that they're mentioned, which most people have never caught. You know, I was reading this and there's... Anytime you read something in the Bible, there's always a reason for every word. And I was reading this and I thought, hmm, isn't that odd? It says here in uh, Daniel 12, um, verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters, there's somebody in the, the above the waters, and we know that's Christ, okay? He's above the waters, he's in linen. Um, how long shall... Uh, the fulfillment of these wonders be. And I said to myself, why does it say the other riverbank? Why are there two riverbanks? And then it suddenly dawned on me, of course, what is the name, what does the word Hebrew come from? Anybody? Eber, to cross over. One is a Jew, one is a Gentile. That's why one is on one side of the riverbank, one is on the other, because they crossed over that area, came to Canaan, Abraham the Hebrew. Genesis uh, 13, I think, is the first time it's mentioned. There you go. It is. It's Enoch and Elijah. There's no doubt about it. Okay, one is a Hebrew, one is a non-Hebrew Gentile before the, the uh, law and before Abraham being called the uh, first Hebrew or Abraham the Hebrew. Anyway, there you go. So that, that, that is certainly what's going on there. I, you know, you can't be dogmatic about it. 
but it makes complete sense. Yeah. It makes complete sense. Okay, so um, seven. three seven, yeah. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. Okay, kind of stops in the middle there. Yeah. All right. In the previous verse, Paul noted that the letter kills. Now he uses that thought to convey an idea concerning the surpassing glory of the gospel. But first he must show how glorious even the law of Moses was. This law, the ministry of death, okay, the law was a ministry of death, not life, folks, was written and engraved on stones, Paul says. The Greek literally reads engraved on stone by means of letters. Engraved on stones by means of letters. This document the Ten Commandments was representative of the whole law of Moses. And it bore a glory that was so amazing that its effects are specifically recorded for us to remember. The account is found in Exodus chapter 34. Here's what it says in Exodus 34. You know, it's a shame going through the Bible and you preach on it and you think I preached on it. Now I can't go back and preach on it again because it is so wonderful. But Exodus 34 and then in verse 29 it says... Um, where are we? 29. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near. Then Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Okay, marvelous. In short, Paul explains that it was so glorious, as he says, that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Now, if you ever see a depiction of Moses and he's got horns, has anybody ever seen that? Makes him look like a, a devil. Okay, the word in the uh, Old Testament for when it says his face shown, it is karnaim, horns, okay? And horns protrude out of somebody. And so it was saying that he had a glory that shone, okay? But you'll see sometimes statues of Moses and he's actually got horns in his head and it makes him look like, you know, a, a demon or something. That's because it's a misunderstanding of the word karnaim, okay? Like I think the Latin Vulgate translates that way. Um, anyway, a couple versions do, but it... They literally translated the word horn instead of saying what the horn represents is manifestation of power and glory. Okay. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, yeah, the radiation of Moses. Okay. It was passing away. In other words, the law which was given through Moses is being equated with the passing away of the glory of the light emanating from Moses. That's what Paul's making a one-to-one -one comparison. There would be a time when the law would fade into history, being replaced with something even more glorious. He will explain this in the verses ahead. Life application, if the glory of God was associated with the giving of the old covenant, which was intended to come to an end at the coming of Christ, 
then how much greater must be the glory in the giving of the new? Let us never presume to return to the law of Moses, which has now faded away. Instead, let us proceed onward in the grace of Jesus Christ, adhering to the new covenant, which is sealed in his precious blood. Okay, 3 eight. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? More glorious. What a wonderful, even amazing sentiment. Paul has spoken of the glory of the ministry of death, meaning the law of Moses, which is fading away. In an argument from the lesser to the greater, he now basically asks, if that was so glorious, then how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Note how he does not call it the ministry of life in contrast to the ministry of death. Instead, he calls it the ministry of the Spirit. This Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, is life, and so the contrast is made instead to the physical, tangible stone with carved letters. Because of the use of the Spirit in place of the law, it is speaking of the entire process of the transmission of the gospel. The work at Pentecost, his influence on the apostles to include their work and their writings, which are now in the New Testament, and then the continued preaching and evaluation of that word. This and so much more is the ministry of the Spirit. Okay? Yeah. All right. It is this which is more glorious, and it is this which will reveal glories ahead. This is seen in the use of the preposition N, which denotes the permanent nature of the glory, and then the verb translated as will be, which is in the future tense. It shows that what is yet to be revealed contains surpassing glory. Everything about the new surpasses the old, both in the present and in what is yet to be revealed. Life application. At times, it may seem that our work in the church is not getting anywhere or that the rewards for our efforts just don't seem to carry a great deal of glory. But this is because we are looking at the present and comparing it to the present. If we can remember that everything that we do, every dollar we give, and every prayer for the lost that is realized, all of this carries an eternal glory, which is at this time beyond our imagination. Each person who is brought into salvation through Jesus Christ has an eternity of joy in store for them. Let us not forget this as we continue to work for the expansion of the church. Now we're going to stop there today because we have pizza. First week of the year and uh, we're going to stop a little bit early and this is pizza from, please everybody remember Tom Howard. He sent us some money specifically for pizza today and so we want to remember Tom thanking the Lord for his kind offer and uh, we'll do that right now. We'll bless the pizza. We'll all have pizza and the people online can go have their dinner or do whatever they're going to do. <laughs> Glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to just open this word and see the surpassing glory of what came in Christ and what he has done and continues to do for us and the glory that lies ahead because of his work alone and because of simple faith, because of his grace. We are grateful for that. We appreciate it. Help us never to let it get old in our hearts where we take it for granted or we start to assume that we somehow deserved it or the guy down the road doesn't deserve it. Help us to be responsible in that matter, to even pity the poor person that is fighting against you, and to at least say a quick prayer for him that maybe his eyes would be opened. Lord, help us to be this way and to be uh, faithful stewards of the time that we have and the circumstances that we come into so that people will want to know Jesus and want to have a saving relationship with him. 
Lord, and we thank you for Tom Howard who bought this pizza. We want to ask that you bless him in a special way in the week ahead. And also, Lord, we ask that you bless his food, and we thank you for it, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, let me back Thanks this up Tom here. Tom Howard. Tom Howard, yes. Okay, we're going to go back to uh, break. Okay.